I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 9th, 2013. Coming up, we hear about good calories, bad calories, and the impact on obesity. And we talk with the author of PhD Comics about the drawings of trials and tribulations of grad school as a comic strip. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, starting with a real headline from Jim Pullen. Sergio Canavero, an Italian neurologist with the Turin Advanced Neuromodulation Group, has just published a paper which he says, quote, lays out the groundwork for the first successful human head transplant. Canavero calls his undertaking Heaven, which stands for Head and Stomosis Venture. Anastomosis is a medical term for reattaching a system's branches. The work builds on a 1970 experiment performed by deceased American neurologist Robert J. White. White and his team at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland transplanted the head of a rhesus monkey onto the body of another. However, White was not able to reconnect the spinal cord. The monkey was able to regain consciousness but was unable to move. In the 2013 paper, Canavero presented what he calls Gemini, reattaching the spinal cord of a human. The patient's head would be cooled to below 20 degrees Celsius, which would allow it to survive up to an hour without blood and oxygen. After detaching the other mechanical structures holding the head on, the surgeon will cut the cooled spinal cords with an ultra-sharp blade. He wrote that, this is the clean cut that is key to spinal cord fusion. Canavero reviewed methods and materials for fusing the axons, including inorganic polymers, especially PEG, polyethylene glycol. Aligning the axons, long structures that conduct electric impulses from nerve cells, might be a problem, but he noted that, quote, as little as 10% of descending spinal tracts are sufficient for some voluntary control of locomotion in man. Canavero gave a precis of the procedure involving two surgical teams working side by side to cut the heads from both bodies and transfer the patient's head to the donor's body. Postoperatively, he mentioned that body image and identity issues would have to be addressed as the patient gets used to seeing and using a new body. Heaven is under attack. Dr. Jerry Silver, a neurologist at Case Western, was in White's operating chamber in 1970 and said he saw the look of pain and confusion on the monkey's face when it awakened after the surgery. Silver, who has performed experiments on single rats to reconnect spinal cords, told CBS News that Canavero's procedure is light years from what would really be required, and that using PEG to fuse axons is, quote, pure and utter fantasy. Silver said that the experiments are unethical and should not be done. Canavero wrote that, with a committed effort, the procedure can be accomplished within a couple of years. He mentioned that there are ethical considerations, but concluded, it is equally clear that horrible conditions without a hope of improvement 
cannot be relegated to the dark corners of medicine. The paper was published by the journal Surgery Neurology International on June 13, 2013. Look on our website for a link. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Ever since the 1970s, the rise of obesity and related health problems such as diabetes in the United States has been an epidemic. Colorado is still the skinniest state, but that's not really good news because the number of people in Colorado who are obese has been going up here just as it has everywhere else. In fact, less than two decades ago, Colorado's rate of obesity today would have made it one of the fattest states back then. That's how fast obesity has been going up. And it's why researchers around the world are trying desperately to figure out why so many of us get fat and how we can become unfat. Here in Colorado, the greatest amount of funding and support from public health policy goes toward the message that we get fat because we eat too many calories and do not exercise enough. So by that logic, it's all about calories in, calories out. In other words, eat lots of carbs, which are lower in calories, and limit fats, which are higher in calories. And when you do eat a lot, go exercise it off. Recently, an expert with a completely different view spoke to a packed audience of doctors, staff, and medical students at the CU Medical Center. The expert's name is Gary Taubes. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and Why We Get Fat. Towns is also the recipient of angel investor funds for solving the obesity epidemic in a new way. The angels have given Towns $60 million to research how the kinds of food we eat affect our weight and health. Central to Towns' idea is the opinion that calories in, calories out simply cannot be enough to explain or help people maintain a healthy weight. For more, here's an excerpt from his talk at the CU Medical School. Whenever anyone argues like I do that this energy balance, calories in, calories out thing is meaningless, we're accused of not understanding the laws of thermodynamics. I was actually on the Larry King show when Good Calories, Bad Calories came out, and Jillian Michaels, a trainer from The Biggest Loser, came on from Los Angeles and gave me a lecture on thermodynamics on national television. And after we went to a commercial break, I turned to Mehmet Oz, who was sitting next to me, and I said, I have a physics degree from Harvard. <laughs> and I just, Jillian Michaels just lectured me on thermodynamics. And you can watch this cut on TV. I'm, like, literally speechless. I, so, um, it's on YouTube. Uh, okay, we believe this stuff about calories because of the first law of thermodynamics, which is the law of energy conservation. Simply put, energy is not created nor destroyed. It's the one law of thermodynamics that's easy to understand. Okay, so the idea is if a system gets more massive, it takes in more energy than it expends. If a system gets less massive, it doesn't matter what the system is, it's got to expend more than it takes in, because we can't create energy from nowhere, and we can't um, uh, make energy vanish. It can only change forms. Okay, it's a very simple law, and it gets translated into this energy balance equation Delta E, the change of energy in a system, is equal to the energy that goes in minus the energy that goes out. Okay, and in terms of our obesity issue, delta E becomes our fat stores, our energy stores, 
And so change in fat mass equal to energy consumed minus energy expended. And what we do with this law, we say, look, if E in goes up, if I eat more, and E out doesn't change, I don't compensate by exercising more, then delta E becomes positive, and I start storing energy. Therefore, eating too much causes obesity. And if E out goes down, if I become sedentary, I have an accident or something, I break my leg, and I don't compensate by eating less, delta E becomes positive, I start storing energy, therefore sedentary behavior causes obesity. So it makes perfect sense, it's completely logical. The problem is there is no arrow of causality in this law. By that I mean all the laws of thermodynamics say are if a system gets bigger, this is what happens, and if it gets less massive, this is what happens. But it says nothing about why the system gets more or less massive. For instance, a star could get more massive, but we know that it's not eating more. You know, it just says this is what it's, so it's, it's an association. And this is the way the universe works. It's a law. It's always true. But it tells us nothing about causality. So one way to think about it, a metaphor, is imagine we're walking by the hallway here. And we look in and we see that this room is packed with energy. So you want to ask me, why is this room so crowded with energy? Same way we want to know why that person's fat tissue is so full of energy. Okay? So it's an equivalent thing. And so you say to me, Gary, why is that room so full of energy? And I say, because more people entered than left which is the equivalent of saying more energy entered than left, which is the equivalent of saying that person got fat because they more energy entered than left. If I told you anything you didn't know, okay? I haven't said it's obvious more people entered than left because the room is crowded. That's a given. So you say to me, Gary, that's a given. I want a real answer, not this bogus more people entered than left thing. So I say, ah, okay, but if more people entered than leave, it's got to get more crowded, right? Which is equivalent of saying, if you eat more than you expend, you have to get fatter. Have I told you anything yet? Are you still satisfied with my answer? And I hope by this time you're ready to slap me. Okay, so what could be an explanation? Why could this room be so full of energy? Maybe there's a lecture going on. Maybe there's a compelling speaker. Maybe there's free drinks in here. Maybe you notice that Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt had stumbled in and were sitting in the front row. Okay, maybe the air conditioning worked in here, but nowhere else in the building. It was 95 degrees out there and 72 in here. Maybe the fire alarms went off outside. And the sprinkler system was on. This was the only room that wasn't wet. Maybe there are large members of the University of Colorado football team standing at the door, throwing people in and not letting them leave. These are all explanations for why this room is full of energy in the form of people. Okay? They, they talk about the conditions inside the room, the speaker, the free drinks, Angelina and Brad, the temperature, the difference between the conditions inside and outside, the temperature differential, right? the, the water outside from the sprinklers, it's dry in here, and even the conditions at the boundary, the, the big football players throwing people in and not letting them out. These are all meaningful explanations. That more energy in the form of people came in than left is meaningless. It's a given. And in fact, it doesn't even tell you whether the room's crowded. It only tells you that it's getting more crowded if that's happening. And so the point is, when you say the same thing about obesity, that people got fat because they took in more energy than they expend, you are saying nothing. If they got fatter, they took in more energy than they expended. That is a given. This is the single biggest mistake that was made in obesity research. It was embraced. It was always there. It was embraced in the 1950s. And it became the conventional wisdom. And nobody questioned it. I didn't question it. It seems obvious. The laws of thermodynamics say nothing about obesity.
They're completely irrelevant. They're always true, Jillian, but they say nothing <laughs> about why we get fat. And when I was lecturing recently to a group of cardiologists at the Mayo Clinic, I said, look, why is it that from the moment you enter medical school to the moment you retire, the only disorder you will ever diagnose with a physics textbook is obesity. This is biology, folks. It's endocrinology. It's physiology. Physics has nothing to do with it. The laws of thermodynamics are always true. The energy balance equation is irrelevant. If somebody's getting fatter, I guarantee you they're taking more energy than they expend. Okay, as long as they're getting heavier. And if they're getting leaner, I guarantee you they're expending more than they're taking in. Given. Let's never discuss it again. And if you say it to your patients, you're telling them nothing. You're telling them that lecture hall was crowded because more people entered than left. Gary Taubes is the author of the New York Times bestsellers Good Calories, Bad Calories, and Why We Get Fat. Angel investors have given Taubes $60 million to research how the kinds of foods we eat affect our weight and health. He spoke recently at the CU Medical School. If you'd like access to the full interview, contact us through our website, howonearthradio.org. You are listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Unless you work in science, you may not always be aware of the humor that goes on among scientists and what the culture is like. So what better way to show the comic parts of science than by way of a comic strip? One of the more well-known science-oriented comic strips is called PhD Comics and is written by Jorge Chem. Dr. Chem has all the science credentials to know what he is writing about. He's a trained engineer with a bachelor's degree from Georgia Tech and a PhD in robotics from Stanford, where his thesis was about the design of robots with legs as opposed to wheels to move quickly through difficult terrain on other planets or after disasters such as earthquakes. He found that, quote, soft and squishy cockroach-like legs were a more efficient design. He also was an instructor at Caltech, a researcher in a neuroscience lab where he studied brain and machine interfaces and also has a chemistry background. So he has a wide set of experiences to draw on, literally to draw on for his comic. I had a chance to talk with Jorge Chem to find out more about the comic in other ways the science comic artist unveils the secret lives of scientists, and in particular, science grad students. We start with Jorge talking about the origin of the comic strip. You know, I uh, went to Stanford, and I thought I was pretty um, good at school. You know, I graduated um, pretty well from during tech, and uh, but, you know, you sort of find a lot of people find out when you go to graduates, it's really kind of like been going to a different league. And so it's, a lot of people get slammed and a lot of egos get crushed in that. And so it's just kind of that experience of suddenly being a nameless grad student, of struggling with learning how much you little you know actually about everything. Uh, it was kind of all that anxiety, just trying to uh, interact with professors and finding an advisor and learning about how to do research, uh, all of that, you know, was kind of in my head, and 
and, and then one night I was talking to my brother who had um, also done a stand for me. He's like, oh, I always thought there should be a comic about grad students. Because, you know, the comics are usually about undergrads, right? And, uh, and so I thought, hey, that's a great idea. And so I just kind of went a whim just to procrastinate started drawing these comics for the, for the students for there. Yeah, and then just slowly over the years, it's kind of taken over my life. So the motivation was a uh, original source of procrastination that now is the thing that fills up all your time. Yeah, my whole life is one big procrastination. <laughs> How was your comic received by your fellow grad students and perhaps more importantly, the faculty when you started doing it? That's one of the things about grad school is you're so afraid of what your professor will think of you, how they're judging you, what they're how they're evaluating you. You're stressed out about not working enough. And, and my fellow grad students all loved it. You know, it was, I mean, I'm, I'm the one who drew it and wrote it, but it was really kind of a lab group effort. Like a lot of the characters in the comics came from my lab group. A lot of the initial jokes and situations were all um, from my lab mates. So they're all pulled from life. Yeah, yeah. And so it was really interesting because, you know, back then in the late 90s, grad school was really just kind of a very ignored part of university. You know, now I think there's a lot more attention paid to grad students and they're kind of treated <laughs> a little bit better. But back then, you know, there were all these grad students kind of struggling for their for their rights, for their, um, for their benefits and things like that. And so the comics are kind of at least on campus, kind of became this rallying cry in a way, which is interesting because around all these protests that were happening on campus for student housing and, and benefits and things like that. And so that was just kind of encouraging and interesting just to have that kind of disrupt us in that way. You've been out of grad school for a little while. How do you still get your inspiration, or do you think grad school hasn't changed? Uh, you know, I realized early on these comics were not about me. They really, I think, speak for a whole group of people, I think, who are young people who go into grad school and get lost and get stuck in limbo or, or are not quite sure what to do with their lives. The eternal grad student. Yeah, you know, I think the comics kind of have a life of its own and a purpose of its own and feel like it's just my job to, to keep it going, to kind of translate these things, these messages into comic book form. And so a lot of times, most of what happens now is people send me their ideas or I get ideas from talking to grad students when I go on these uh, lecture tours. It's really kind of a community effort, I think. Have you had the chance to discuss some recent discoveries in science as kind of a motivation for some of the strips that you do? One of the things that uh, uh, happened was that because of all the speaking tours that I did, I got to travel you know, all over the world and, and meet a lot of people and a lot of research centers and a lot of different areas. And so just part of what inspired me um, was to see all this, all this work being done everywhere and, and maybe just realizing how much I didn't know about everything. So, you know, that also inspired me, and um, I just felt compelled to write about it. So I, I've also write. In addition to kind of the Dilbert type of jokes about grad school, I also try to write comics and animations that kind of explain what people are working on, what they're learning, what they're discovering about, about our world. Yeah, yeah, I've seen those. They're, I don't know what to call them. They're kind of comic videos in a way. You see the comic being drawn and developed as someone is explaining a concept or the work that they're doing. You know, that's a format that is now popular on the Internet a lot. Well, my goal for these is to actually create a comic 
and then animate the process of creating the comic. And so you get to this nice, interesting mix between the two art forms. What topics have you covered in using that form? So the, the most popular one I did was about the Cake Boson. Uh, so this professor, Daniel Whiteson at uh, UC Irvine, uh, contacted me and he said, I think that popular media and nobody out there is really explaining what this Higgs boson is or what they're trying to do at, we're trying to do at CERN. And you could almost tell from all those articles, even though it was huge uh, headline grabber and everyone was talking about it, you know, nobody even bothered to explain what it was. Now. Like, I'm not sure why that is, right? Like, do they just not have things they could do it? They just not think the public can be understand it, that the reporters is basically understand that the scientists not know how to explain it. And so I figured, I always could imagine that there has to be a good way to explain anything. And so I said, yeah, let's, let's make this stuff. And, and so we created one about dark matter that's online that was popular, and the one about Higgs boson really kind of went uh, viral in a way. It does provide a very nice visual and dynamic way of adding the information along with someone who's explaining what the concept is. Yeah, you're right. I think combining the visual and the audio with what cartoons let you do is that you, you use a lot of shortcuts and emotion. And so, yeah, it, it seems to be working pretty well. So I'm trying to do more of those now as well. And you also have done some live videos as well, one trip to Keck Observatory. You also have a PhD movie. It's the mashup between the comic and the real-life videos, I guess. Can you describe that movie? Sure, yeah, I'm very excited. You can watch it at phdmovie.com. And it's basically a live-action adaptation of the comics. So you can imagine that somebody made a live-action version of Spielberg, which I guess is the office in a way. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we, we created this movie, which was originally intended to be kind of a web series, but as we kind of got into it, we, we found more support and, and we made it into a movie. But yeah, it's, it's a movie about grad students and professors and, and the funny stuff that happens. And what was interesting about the way we made it, I thought, was we um, I decided to try to use real grad students and real scientists and professors. So the movie was uh, produced and directed by grad students. And it's all the actors are students, and there's a lot of cameos by um, some famous professors. And I was filmed on location at Caltech. Do you think your comic and movie uh, entices people into grad school or scares them away? You know, I very, very rarely get anyone telling me, like, oh, I read your comics and I decided not to go to grad school. I think, if anything, you know, just knowing the truth, I think, is very helpful in any decision uh, you make. Uh, but I've actually had people tell me, like, because of the comics, they decided to go to grad school. Uh, more people, I think, stay on and, and kind of see their difficulties with humor and to realize that they're not the only ones going through it. That was Jorge Chem, the author of PhD Comics. You can find the comic at phdcomics.com and also find links there to PhD TV, which has the live action and animated discussions of the Mars rover, telescopes on Mauna Kea, the physics of surfing, the Higgs boson, dark matter, and the PhD movie. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Joel Parker. 
Additional contributions by Jim Pullen. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Tom Tom Club and the theme from Young Frankenstein. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Joel Parker.